Hey, everybody, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick announcement to share with all of you. Beginning in April, I'm going to be launching a series of college to career live weekend boot camps to help graduating seniors as well as juniors who are confused about what jobs or careers they might want to pursue when they graduate. So imagine going from confused to confident with at least three different career options you'd be psyched to explore by the end of day one of the boot camp. And then learning the tools, tactics, and the strategies to find those jobs by the end of day two. The boot camp is live and it's led by me over Zoom. And you can learn more about it at College to Career Academy. That's college, the number two, career.academy. Or you can just look me up on LinkedIn and check out the featured section of my LinkedIn page. I can't imagine a better graduation gift for the college students in your life. Thanks so much for listening, and I know you're going to enjoy my next incredible guest. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of Time for Coffee. If you're interested in learning more about the world of advocacy and public policy, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has served four presidents and two governors, counseled Fortune 500 CEOs, and today is the CEO of one of the world's leading food allergy advocacy organizations. But before I introduce you to Lisa Gable, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out bright and early on Monday mornings, and it's got unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And please make sure to check out my live streaming show on LinkedIn. It comes out every week, a different day every week, so make sure that you Click on the link in show notes to follow me on LinkedIn because on the show, I'm sharing coronavirus-relevant career advice. I interview guests live. I am taking your questions, featuring your comments. And if you follow me, then you'll get an alert when the show is live so you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Lisa Gable, the CEO of FAIR, the world's leading food allergy advocacy organization. And it's also the largest private funder of food allergy research. Over her career, Lisa has served four U.S. presidents and two governors. She's counseled Fortune 500 CEOs and she's also represented global public-private partnerships and nonprofits with the goal of moving these organizations to higher levels of performance. As the former president of the Healthy Weight Commitment Foundation, 
Lisa created and led a coalition of food and beverage industry corporations and public health and government agencies, the net result of which was a reduction in, get this, 6.4 trillion calories from the American diet. Earlier in her career, Lisa was appointed the first female U.S. Commissioner General to the 2005 Aichi World Expo, holding the personal rank of ambassador. Her corporate experience included serving as Senior Vice President of Global Public Policy at PepsiCo and 15 years in Silicon Valley. Lisa, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So what kind of caffeine do you enjoy in the mornings? You know what? I get my Keurig coffee and my favorite is French vanilla cream inside. So it's a it's a morning pleasure for me. I have to have it when I wake up. Nice, nice. Well, before we get into what you do as CEO at FAIR, which by the way, stands for Food Allergy Research and Education, I thought it might make sense if you kind of kick things off, Lisa, by painting the picture of just how common food allergies are here in the United States and maybe start off by clarifying for our listeners what actually constitutes a food allergy because I know there's some misunderstandings about that versus, let's say, a food intolerance. Sure. So there are 32 million Americans who have a life-threatening food allergy. What that means is they are individuals who can eat a food accidentally and go into anaphylaxis. Anaphylaxis is shutting down of two systems, and it's really not predictable. It is not as if the same systems get shut down based on whatever your allergy is. In some people's cases, their throat might tighten up. In many cases, their blood pressure drops to a level that is life-threatening. Perhaps they get itchy mouth or their eyes get red. It's very much person-dependent, it's very unpredictable, and they can die unless they take an epinephrine auto-injector and then go to the emergency room. On the flip side, what we also know is that there are 85 million Americans who actually avoid the same top nine allergens. 32 million of those are people with life-threatening food allergies, uh, but then there are people who live in the household with those individuals, as well as there are people with food intolerances. And so we don't want to underestimate the impact on the life of people with food intolerances or other types of diseases like celiac, but food allergies is directly tied to anaphylactic shock. Got it. So what is the distinction then between a food intolerance and a food allergy? Food intolerance has a wide range. And so you could have someone who has a swelling, an upset stomach, perhaps they do get an itchy mouth. But again, someone who has a life-threatening food allergy will be someone who has a system shutdown. And that is why you need to get them to the emergency room. And that is why people can die immediately from that. Other people might be hospitalized. But in our cases, it is something where someone could actually pass away very quickly. And you mentioned the itchy mouth, the eyes that get red and some of these other symptoms, how do most allergies manifest? And I ask that because 
you can walk down the aisle in pretty much any pharmacy and there are shelves full of medicines like over-the-counter medicines, of course, like Claritin and Benadryl and whatnot that people use to manage various allergies. Are those very different, different allergies? They're very different. Okay. In our case, yeah. You're talking about environmental allergies. And in the case of individuals with life-threatening food allergies, they need to carry an epinephrine auto-injector. So there are things called AviQ, which is made by Kaleo. There's that actually talks you through the process of giving someone the injection. It's a nice little portable pack. There's the EpiPen made by Mylan. But these are people who actually have to carry a device with them in case they ever have accidental ingestion. Understood. Now, you mentioned nine foods that cause most food allergies. What are they, Lisa? I hate it when people ask me to list them because oh, I'm so I sorry. <laughs> no, Let me, I can pull up your website. See how good I am today, and how much of your coffee that I've actually taken. So, <laughs> let me give you the top nine allergens: milk, egg, peanut, soy, wheat, tree nut, shellfish, fish, and sesame. Dang, I'm impressed. Okay, I am so sorry. I didn't mean for that to be a curveball. But what is it about those foods that we know or don't know behind why they cause the majority of food allergies? They're all complex proteins. And what we know is that food allergies that cause some level of anaphylaxis are proteins. You also need to know that food allergy is an immunological disease, right? So it, it is a disease that affects your immune system. And so your immune system is basically fighting. And one of the things that we are investing a lot of money in right now is what we call prevention research. How do we prevent young children and babies from developing these allergies? And so basically, we are going through a process uh, based on a study called the LEAP study, where you can feed an infant increasing amounts of the allergen to basically train their immune system, to train their gut. And the research that currently has been done by FAIR is very directly related to peanut. We were one of the funders of a big peanut study called the LEAP study, but we have a study going on at Northwestern that is looking at feeding the infants multiple allergens and seeing if we can train their immune system, train their gut to tolerate that food, and therefore it doesn't become something that is a life-threatening food allergy. Excellent. For any of our listeners, Lisa, who may be living right now with a life-threatening food allergy, is there any hope on the horizon for some kind of a cure or a medicine to keep these allergies, to keep the immune system from producing antibodies that, in effect, fight what it believes to be an enemy food? It's a really exciting time in the food allergy space. Last year, the FDA approved the first therapy, which was for peanut allergy. It's called Palforzia. It's by a company called A-Immune that was recently purchased by Nestle during the last few weeks. But at the point that the FDA made that approval, there were a number of other types of therapies that are currently being tested. And so they range from the widest variety of things from biologics, which are made up of the living organism themselves, like the peanut allergy. But we also have someone looking at toothpaste. Somebody is looking at drops you put under your tongue. 
the FDA is reviewing something from DBV, which is called the patch. It's actually a patch that you put on the outside of your skin and has the allergen in it so that it introduces it slowly into your body. So that, again, you can build up your ability to not have anaphylaxis. So it's a very, very exciting time in this space. There are a lot of different companies entering into this space, a lot of money going into research in this space. And so even though there is only one therapy in market right now, we are very hopeful that some multi-allergen therapies will come into market soon. We are looking at the impact of certain products from Genentech and Regeneron, which are injections that people take right now for other diseases that seem to have benefits for people with food allergies. So lots of movement, lots of exciting things. And the job of FAIR is to make sure that we move the bureaucratic hurdles out of the way so that once these drugs go through their clinical trial, that we can move them quickly to the consumer. Fantastic. That is such amazing news. We are going to get into your time in college a little bit later in this interview, but I want our listeners to know now that you majored in international relations as an undergrad. What drew you to FAIR, which you joined two and a half years ago? Well, it's a my life is a little complicated and different than a lot of people because I also got my master's in national security studies looking at weapon systems with uh, <laughs> use technologies, which mean technologies that have military capacity and civilian capacity. I was always very interested in history and in warfare, uh, both from a system standpoint. I had my sheets and my curtains in my bedroom were Revolutionary War cannons and guns. Don't ask me because I also had white go-go boots and I was the tiniest, prissiest little girl, but I loved, loved, loved visiting battlefields in the United States and in Europe. However, the way I got into what I do is that when I left the Reagan White House and Defense Department, I was recruited by a man who had become the CEO of Intel Corporation. And I had done my master's focused on dual-use products, one of which was computer chips. They had military usage as well as civilian usage. Uh, we had not had a consumer market at that point. So, you know, remember, we did, didn't have personal PCs at, at that point in time. And I moved out to Intel. And what I learned how to do is to take manufacturing problem-solving techniques and apply them to solving problems in philanthropy, government, and in companies. And so really the thread throughout my career is I have always worked with manufacturers. I've always used the techniques I learned from Andy Grove and, and the folks at Intel about just-in-time manufacturing and management by objectives. And I use those skills to solve complex problems. When I was working with food and beverage manufacturers, I was actually called back in 2012 about working for FAIR. Couldn't do it. Had another job. 2014, they called because they'd had a CEO who hadn't worked out, couldn't do it, had another job. So in 2018, when I got the call again, I decided maybe I should go in for the interview. And it's been wonderful to be able to bring industry into this very important category so that companies can help drive solutions for food allergy families. Love it. So what are your various responsibilities, Lisa? And could you take us into a typical day for you now during the coronavirus versus, I'm sure, the time that you were living on an airplane before the coronavirus happened? Wow, wow. that's a loaded question. 
my day is a day like today, which is I am doing a couple of podcasts today, but also engaging in meetings with my education team and my research teams about the work that they're doing with our partners to bring solutions to food allergy families. I will tell you, we do get so much more done during this time period of quarantine because of Zoom and our ability to uh, meet with people without having to constantly be adjusting schedules in order to try and meet somebody in person. I was spending a lot of time zipping back and forth between the two coasts. And that's, it's not only exhausting, but you waste so much time. And so in those cases, you know, I would be in a Uber going to my next meeting, rapidly looking at my emails, trying to problem solve, you know, for day-to-day things, because I have fiduciary responsibilities and I have management responsibilities and making decisions and approving documents on your phone may have worked when you were much younger, but at my age, it's really challenging. Uh, So, you know, now I get to just power use the technology to stay on top of things. And we have been able to actually accomplish so much. We've brought in a new high net worth donors. We've launched huge new programs. And in large part, it is because we're not constrained by the geography where we happen to be located. So you mentioned that you have brought your problem-solving techniques, your problem-solving skill set into different organizations since you worked at Intel. How are you applying those skills right now in FAIR? So FAIR is actually a turnaround. When I was brought into the organization, the organization wasn't bringing in enough money to pay for its baseline funding. It had been the recipient of a financial reserve but the reserve was being pulled down and no money was coming in. And so we actually did an 83% restructure at FAIR. And the way I used my Intel processes is that I looked at where we wanted the organization to be in the future, broke everything down, ranked and rated things, used things like the quality improvement process, used decision trees, and really made decisions about what assets we would keep and what assets we would let go. And so it was a complete restructure. We've just come out of that turnaround, uh, but uh, and hired back up with individuals who have the professional and academic backgrounds that fit with where we saw the organization being in the future. However, I could not have done this level of a turnaround without having my training at Intel. Interesting. So as you have mentioned, you have worked in the private sector and you've worked in government, and you've worked in the nonprofit world, including your work for foundations, as you did when you were president of the Healthy Weight Commitment Foundation. What have you learned through those experiences, Lisa, about how one's career path can unfold? I learned a very specific skill set at a very young age. I had the opportunity to work for Secretary of Defense, the President of the United States, and then a man who became the CEO of one of the largest companies in the world. I have always worked for CEOs and high net worth individuals who have an area that they are uh, particularly interested in uh, for business reasons or for a philanthropic reason. They feel very strongly that we need to fix a particular problem and nobody's been able to fix it before. And so What I have learned is that the fundamental skill set of problem solving that I bring into 
the work environment combined with my ability to communicate and understand what someone who operates at that level wants to see happen is really the foundational piece of my career. I think the other aspect of it is that in that I have always done turnarounds, sometimes people who went before me over the last 35 years may not have exhibited the best judgment. And so I spend a great deal of time shoring up the fiduciary and governance management of whatever process I'm involved with. And so in the government, that becomes critically important because there are a lot of rules that you have to follow at the State Department, the Defense Department, and elsewhere. And in business, we have Sarbanes-Oxley, so we have oversight. And in the not-for-profit arena, you have your 990, and it's public. And so there are a number of fiduciary responsibilities and processes and systems, and they become extremely critical as you move an organization from failure into success. What about the fact that we can't predict how our careers are going to unfold? Well, I'm an adventurer. <laughs> I like, I, I have, uh, I will take the opportunity that, that looks to be in the most tragic of all positions. So for me, I was always keeping an eye out for a big problem to solve. And I have never felt myself to be restricted by geography. We have laughed in that my husband and I have been married for 25 years. And the two of us for our careers have had our, our primary home, which is a farm. And then we've maintained second homes wherever we happened to be working at the time. And I kind of made a personal decision that all my stuff and my animals had to stay set, but that if there was a unique opportunity, as I had with PepsiCo or that I've had in Silicon Valley, you know, I'll go, I'll get an apartment and do the job. So I really have been very boundless in the way I view life. And I traveled that way too. My sister and I used to do adventure trips where we would literally show up in a country with absolutely no plans and then decide what country or region we would go to next. So oh. I, I like challenges. Love it. So you have been led by big problems. That's what you want to do. You want to solve big problems and it doesn't matter whether they're in the public or private sector or the nonprofit world. Exactly. They have to have a dedicated I've been fortunate when I am brought in is by someone who has the capacity to be my partner in that process. And so even when I took over the World's Fair on behalf of the United States, what people don't know is in 175 years of history, the World's Fair has always been a huge financial mess with a lot of inspector general reports. And if anyone reads the book, Devil in a White City, it outlines all the problems of the Chicago World's Fair. In the fair that I ran, the U.S. Pavilion I ran on behalf of the United States at the Japanese World's Fair, the World Expo, was the only one that has ever ended up under budget, and we were actually commended uh, in the Senate. I could not have done that without having the partnership of Dr. Toyota, who was the chairman of Toyota, the company, the car company, combined with my partnership with Senator Howard Baker, who is the U.S. Ambassador to Japan and having two very high level individuals to link arms with to not only ensure that the US participated and that you know millions of people had a lot of fun 
but that we were also closing foreign direct investment deals on behalf of the United States really required partnership at all levels. And I have been very fortunate to always have partners. Lisa, I'd like to flash back very quickly to when you were in college. As I mentioned earlier, you went to the University of Virginia. Maybe I didn't mention that, but I am now. And you majored in international relations. Did you know what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated? I did. I had done internships in Washington and had done them in the national security area. It was during you know, it was during the Cold War. And so that was easy pickings. But I, in my first internship, heard about a full paid scholarship to a specific program at Georgetown. And I contacted the head of the foundation and said, I want the scholarship. And she said, well, it's an unusual program. The program's for mid-career people. So it was 85% men. They were all in their late 30s. They were uh, military officers going for their first star. They were intelligence officers going for a major promotion. And, and it was in the National Security Studies area at Georgetown. And I said, nope, I'm going after this scholarship. And I just maintained a relationship with the foundation. And I ended up getting the full paid two-year ride to Georgetown. But I put myself through college. And so I was working at the Defense Department in the White House while I went to Georgetown at nighttime uh, when I was 21. So you put yourself through college and you helped to support yourself while you were in graduate school. Absolutely. It was the only way to do it. And in fact, when I did my internships, I worked at nighttime because internships were for free. And so I worked on phone banks at nighttime to make enough money to live in the summertime in Washington. I also, I ended up getting political appointment when I was 19, uh, because I went through college very quickly. And I was uh, traveling around the United States talking about privatization of student loans and how young people like me could put themselves through college and the benefits of privatized student loans. And so I cobbled together the oddest array of activities from phone banks to the job at the Department of Education, and then later going to graduate school while I worked. Lisa, I know you have some advice that you want to offer our young listeners around what they should think about when they're choosing internships. The internship is going to teach you whether or not you want to go into that category. And you want to use your internships to test out different things. The other thing is your internships are going to teach you basic skills. My own daughter started interning because of my original contacts at a very young age at the Reagan Library and then on Capitol Hill. She did four, I believe, internships. And she decided she did not want to work in Washington after those internships. And she did not want to work on Capitol Hill. But she is now a Montessori teacher with a for-private school system that is a startup, a well-funded startup in Dallas. And Not only is her education experience and getting her master's in education, but I think one thing that made her stand out in the crowd is because of her internships, she has actually been able to help them with the business side of the school and the startup because she had experience. And so who would have thought interning on Capitol Hill would make you a more competitive player going after a job as a Montessori preschool teacher? But now she's setting up partnerships for the school. She knows how to conduct herself in a business meeting with 
partners like the Dallas Girl Scouts, who she's brought in as a partner. So don't overthink it. Use your internships to learn a skill set and use your internships to test out whether or not you want to do this thing. Oh, I love that. And I think that's so important for our listeners to take on board because I think there is there's so much pressure and some of it I think is self-imposed to find the perfect internship, to find the most impressive internships. And honestly, I think it also depends upon who you're interning for and with. And by that, I mean the person that you'll be working with most directly, because there are intangibles that you get that go far beyond the name of the organization or the senator or the congressman that you're working for and really come from the individual or individuals that you'll be coming into contact with because they are giving you so much wisdom and opportunities for you to learn from them that go well beyond what the organization is. Absolutely. You really are learning from those people. And one of the things we talked about in our earlier podcast was responsiveness. They teach you how they expect you to respond, how they expect you to communicate, how someone communicates in a professional environment. And if the one thing you learn are professional communication skills, you will be golden no matter where you go because it is something that is missing and it's something that each employer is looking for. We don't want to have to teach people how to write. We don't want to have to teach people how to do a professional email. We expect you to walk in the door knowing how to communicate professionally. We want you to know how to write an email. We want you to know how to write a memo. We want you to know how to answer the phone properly and call a customer or call a constituent. And it doesn't matter what internship you take, basic communication skills are going to actually set you apart the moment that you arrive at your first job. And it's one of the most important things that you can learn. A hundred percent. I hope all current and former Time for Coffee interns are listening up because one of the things that I try to reinforce with them from day one is the importance of knowing how to manage up. Absolutely. Right? Not just talk to your peers in the office, but knowing how to act professionally with your supervisor, that is super important. And that's what internships teach you. Lisa, as you know, before we began this interview, I try to offer my guests the opportunity to suggest topics that they would like to raise during our time together. And one of the ones that you suggested was how to choose your personal brand attributes. Could you elaborate on that concept for us? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I did a corporate branding for 15 years in Silicon Valley. And I made a decision early on. I wanted people to think I was smart and credible. And where that came from is that Craig Barrett, who was the CEO of Intel that hired me out of Washington when I was 24, said, I hire smart people. And I thought, well, that's, a, that's an attribute you want to have, smart people. But then he also told me another thing. I want people to speak with facts. Data is important. And I thought, well, that's credibility. 
And I think that you need to think about what's unique about you. What's your superpower? What can you do? And then you brand yourself. You really think within the terms of how you set up your LinkedIn, how you communicate with people. Are you demonstrating the attributes that you want to have represent you throughout your career? Fantastic advice. Two final T4C questions, Lisa. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you even failed. And I ask that question not because I'm trying to embarrass my guests. I mean, the truth is far from it. I personally speak very openly about the times that I've failed in my own professional journey and the opportunities that those failures have afforded me. And my hope in asking this question of all of my guests is that by sharing some of our own personal struggles, we will be able to empower all of our young listeners to recognize that we all have ups and downs in our personal lives as we are experiencing with COVID and in our professional lives as many people are also experiencing with COVID. But that often those downs lead to new insights and wonderful new opportunities. Well, I speak a lot about, I give a speech called Zigzag to the Top. When my daughter's adopted, 10 months after her adoption, my husband was in the middle of a startup. I had my own company in Silicon Valley, and he was on the operating table with a malignant tumor. And we would soon go through a period where he had seven operations. And it turned out that out of all the people in the United States, he was one of 50 people a year who had a reoccurring malignant tumor. We had to basically change our entire lives. He's really the inspiration on this one because the money from his VC went into his startup account during his first operation. He and his partners sold the company two and a half years later. And for his first year, they cut one of his vocal cords and he could not speak. And his whole job was... He was the evangelist. He was the business guy you put on TV. So we've learned that you can zigzag, you can take turns in the road. I had to change my career significantly during the period of time when he was most ill and step away from it. And I had to find other ways to get professional credentials. And that's when I started joining corporate boards and large nonprofit boards because I wanted to be a professional, but I couldn't work full-time while I had a young daughter and a sick husband. So the reality is life is not linear. It doesn't matter how much you plan. It doesn't matter how you didn't plan for it to turn out that way. Things will happen. And the entire United States has learned that as the world has during the last nine months. And the question everybody has to ask themselves is, what can I do? How do I move forward? And what is my plan of action for me and my career, despite the challenge that has been tossed our way? And that is something that uh, has guided me and it's actually empowered me for the last 22 years. Thank you so much for sharing that. How is your husband doing now? He is on another startup on quantum computing and he is upstairs on the phone call with his board, I believe. He has had his physical ups and downs. He has been in and out of the hospital. He has had strange and unexpected things happen. But 
once dropped down to be 95 pounds. But he never gave up and neither did we. And we all kept moving forward and enjoying life and the opportunities that were given to us. Oh, my gosh. Well, again, thank you so much for sharing that, Lisa. Final question. If you could go back to UVA and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? You know, I'm happy with what I did at UVA. I got to know great people. I developed wonderful friendships. I ended up having good relationships with certain professors who served as my people who wrote me letters for, for graduate school. I would say the one thing I did, and it was my second year, is I had been head of the yearbook and top of cheerleading and all of those things in high school. And the mistake I made was signing up for too much in college. And so my advice to myself is use your summers to gain your experience, but don't overdo it and focus on your studies in college. And I had to step back from all those volunteer experiences. But uh, otherwise, it played out well. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. If you're interested in learning more about what's happening in the food allergy world, you should check out Fair's new podcast called Living Teal at the Table with Fair. It provides all kinds of wonderful conversations, sharing key tips for daily living, including a special focus on living with or caring for someone with food allergies. We will have a link to it in our show notes. Lisa, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. I enjoyed this so much. Well, great. I really appreciate having a chance to speak with you and to your audience. And I wish everybody well as they're figuring out how to plan their lives and their careers. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.